0: For status, I am Malihae Zazan. On October 25th, protesters took to the streets of Baghdad once again, calling for radical changes to the existing political and economic system.
1: Frankly, all they have seen is the very same faces of these corrupt parties rotating, and all they have seen is massive corruption, and they have seen a new class, political class, with its you know, satellite classes in alliance with it getting richer and richer and enjoying the wealth of the country, whereas they have stayed at the bottom.
0: Ever since the new waves of protests erupted in Baghdad on October 1st and quickly spread to several southern cities, Iraq has been rocked by demonstrations and acts of civil disobedience rooted in long-standing grievances over unemployment, inadequate services, economic mismanagement, and corruption. The security forces have responded harshly, killing more than 300 protesters and injuring thousands more. Nevertheless, the unrest continues and the protesters have expanded their demands to include an overhaul of Iraq's political structure, which was established after the US-led Invasion of Iraq in 2003. To get a better picture of what is happening in Iraq and the role of the US and regional players in that country, Shahram Agamir spoke with New York University professor Sinan Antoun and started by asking him about the recent developments on the ground.
1: This last wave of protests started in October and they started in Baghdad and some of the cities in the south. And the unprecedented, unnecessarily lethal response by the authorities in killing a large number of protesters. Not that they didn't kill in the past, but the large number of protesters who were killed fueled the anger of the protests and caused them to spread even more and become stronger. I think what's interesting is the composition and the intensity of these protests. So unlike previous protests that were organized by activists or called for by a certain political party. These were spontaneous, and they came mostly from the disaffected, poorer neighborhoods in Baghdad. And then by the end of the month, other sectors of society joined in, and now it has become a cross-sector, massive protest that are unprecedented in terms of their scope, in the modern history of Iraq, I think. So if in the beginning, we mostly had the uh, unemployed, impoverished youth from the slums of, of Baghdad, now we see that it has spread across the country, but also they have been joined by syndicates of lawyers, of doctors, and of university students and school students. And there is a new sense of of solidarity amongst all of these. And now they've spread also, in Baghdad at least, they've spread beyond Tahrir, of course, to other areas and in other cities in the country, in the south especially, there have been calls for civil disobedience and there have been
2: strikes. Uh, What are some of the more common slogans chanted in these protests? It's not unusual for such protests to have a wide range of demands. But what are some of the key demands in this protest?
1: I mean, in October, it started out with a simple slogan of we want a homeland, which I think crystallizes and expresses the sense of rage and despair that most Iraqis have been feeling. But of course, under that, there is the growing sense of anger at the massive corruption of the political elite, the great inequalities and rifts, and the failure of the Iraqi state to provide the minimum of services. And, of course, in the last few weeks, now that Tahrir Square in Baghdad has become kind of the heart of this new movement, and the protesters are organizing themselves, and now they have produced a daily newspaper called Tuktuk after the tuk-tuks that have become also an important symbol and engine of this. They also have an internal radio station and a lot of the demands center around demanding that this government resign because of its its failure and that there is a new caretaker government be formed and that there is a new new elections under United Nations supervision that there should be a new committee to write a new constitution, to replace the old constitution. The important thing is that slogans that are against foreign intervention by United States, Iran, Turkey, or Saudi Arabia. And, I mean, there is a wide array of slogans. And, of course, there has yet to develop a clear leadership or structure, but, I'm, you know, I, I'm sure that these protests... And the new networks that are being formed and that have been formed by all of these protesters will produce something that is more crystallized. But the demands center around the refusal and the loss of any faith or hope in this regime being able to fulfill any of its tasks as a state in a way.
2: Sinan, the Iraqi state has responded to the protests primarily by using the stick with a promise of the carrot to come later. Live ammunition and other brutal measures have been used at different locations to quash the protests. What explains such a brutal response by the state?
1: When we speak of the state, it's always problematic because as many observers and experts have pointed out, there are many power centers that we call the Iraqi state. I prefer to speak of the political class rather than the state, but the political class which has enriched itself throughout these years at the expense of the Iraqi people and which uses state institutions to pile up its income, of course, is afraid of losing its status and losing its power and losing the income that it's uh, looting from the Iraqi people. So the the response is not surprising in a way. It's only surprising in its intensity. But I think the authorities are also surprised by the resilience of the protesters, and in a way by the wisdom and the fluidity and their ability to maneuver. And I think the entire political class, whose average age—not that there are any studies—is probably in the 60s or 70s. Also is incapable of understanding the worldview of this new generation of young Iraqis and where they come from and what kind of demands they have. So there, there's also kind of a generational gap. But oftentimes we don't know exactly who is shooting and killing the protesters. I mean, a lot of times it's these masked men. And, you know, there have been videos and there have been incidents where certain members of the army and others are showing sympathy to the demands of the protesters. And some of them are shown crying when they see manifestations of Iraqi patriotism and all of that. But the political class is trying. Some of them have appropriated the language and the slogans of the protesters about the necessity of change and all of that. But of course, none of these statements have any credibility. But the the interesting thing, thing is the silence on the part of the great majority of these politicians and also the The infrequency of addressing the protests. The president gave one speech a long time ago, and the prime minister also. So I think they're also confused. And now they are waiting, perhaps, to see if the protesters are going to lose steam anytime soon. And they're banking on the protesters not being able to sustain this for a very long time. But developments in the last two days show that actually the protesters are spreading, as I said, taking more bridges and streets in Baghdad and in other places. And the news also is that the protesters are going to the port of Um Umqasr and elsewhere to try to block the export of oil and so on and so forth. So it's an ongoing struggle that's going to witness developments in how the protesters respond and how the regime responds. There are two scenarios in a way. Either the regime commits a major crime a la Sisi in Cairo, and I hope they don't, of course, because that would be a massive massacre. Or the regime does what it's doing now in the kind of the wait and see game. They keep killing protesters, and now we've reached, I think, almost 300 civilians who have been killed by the regime, the authorities, and so on and so forth.
2: That's one of the reasons I use the word state, because uh, you cannot refer just to the government in this case. Mm. No, but also yeah.
1: because there are the militias and there are the anti-riot forces, and there is the army and then there is the police.
2: Yeah, I think perhaps regimes, in addition to the political class, would be appropriate way to... To phrase this. Yes. The trigger for the ongoing protests in Iraq appears to have been spontaneous outburst of anger over employment, poor services and corruption. Talk about Iraq's economy, what are its key characteristics and why is it performing so poorly?
1: It's performing so poorly because it has consistently ranked as one of the most corrupt governments in the entire world. I mean, now I think it's 12th, it used to be number one. And it's because it goes back, aside from the, the, all of the problems of the Iraqi economy under Saddam Hussein's regime and what the sanctions did to Iraq and the over-reliance, of course, over oil. But since 2003, there has not been really any well-thought plan to deal with increasing population that increases by 1 million every year, and with all of the young youth who graduate or who come and who enter the market and have no opportunities whatsoever. But the failure of the Iraqi regime in its economic programs has been staggering, staggering. I mean, there was no clear economic plan, and there is nothing to show. A lot of the demands of the protesters are about pointing out that this regime has not produced anything. i give you one concrete example. The area where the main protest in Baghdad is taking place, Tahrir Square, there is a tunnel there, and there used to be shops that those of us who grew up in Baghdad know, and these shops were completely closed. And the protesters cleaned them and cleaned the area. So this is a very simple example. And now this iconic building of the so-called Turkish restaurant, which was completely abandoned for years. And of course, the regime snipers and troops used to stand there and watch and kill protesters. But now the protesters have taken it over. But they have, with help from other citizens, cleaned the restaurant and renovated it. And someone, you know, an electrician came and hooked it up to... So it's these very simple actions that show what a complete failure this government has been considering the immense wealth that, that Iraq has. Of course, it, much of it has to do also with the type of characters that populate the Iraqi regime. And the corruption extends to the way that patronage is there. But corruption has kind of entered into every facet of Iraqi life. But it's also the reliance on relatives, and so on and so forth, and not relying on experts or people who are professional and all of that.
2: It resonates with me because it's reminiscent of what is taking place in Iran and has been taking place for Mm. many years. I should also add
1: that a conservative estimate is that $600 billion have been lost, have vanished since 2003. And that's a really staggering number, $600 billion. Wow. And for Iraqis in in a country that is so rich in its oil wealth, to have 60 students crammed into a school or students in a school that's made of mud bricks, this is unacceptable. And this and so many other examples of the complete failure of the state. A few years ago, one of the disaffected members of the Dawah Party was himself. Addressing the political elite and saying that the roads that they drive on the buildings that they use uh, Were all built before 2003 They have really not built anything. I have an anecdote four years ago when I was in Baghdad as, as a diaspora person living abroad I I asked a friend who lives in Baghdad. So can you tell me what has changed after 2003? And he said Saddam is gone and I said, okay, that's fine. And then he said I can surf the internet I said, that's wonderful, what else? And that was it. He uh, could not point to any other
2: improvements
1: in the lives of people.
2: Since you mentioned the role of the youth in this protest, we should mention that 60% of the population is under the age 25, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yes, is- that is a very important point to keep in mind. And that, I think, explains the ferocity and the intensity. And also that, you know, these youth. Frankly, all they have seen is the very same faces of these corrupt parties rotating, and all they have seen is massive corruption, and they have seen a new class, political class, with its, you know, satellite classes in alliance with it, getting richer and richer, enjoying the wealth of the country, whereas they have stayed at the bottom and they have not gotten anything and this new generation of course is a savvy generation and they they know what happens in the world and they see what is happening around them in the region and elsewhere and i think despite the decline in education but what what i and so many iraqis have been really inspired by is the sense of critical thinking that a lot of these young youths have
2: sinan you mentioned the neglect of the infrastructure, but Iraq is also experiencing a deepening poverty crisis next to unemployment. More than 30% of the population in oil-rich southern provinces and 15% of Baghdad residents live in poverty. And poverty rates in the provinces that had been previously captured by Daesh, ISIS, is estimated to be more than 45%. Beyond these statistics, how does Poverty and unemployment manifests itself in Iraq.
1: It manifests itself, as I said, in the fact that large sectors of society have no hope whatsoever of getting the minimum that is expected in society. You have so many children having to resort to leaving school and to selling all kinds of things on the street. You have children as young as 10 or 11 that have to sustain families, of course, because their, their fathers died either during the civil war or died fighting ISIS. That is also what fuels a lot of the anger, is that these impoverished people whose families sacrificed to defend the country during the ISIS disaster come back and have no horizons for any change or improvement and the large numbers of men and women who graduate from university have no opportunity whatsoever I give you a concrete example of one of the the martyrs who were killed in this uprising who happened to be a friend of mine and who's become an, an iconic figure in a way his name is Safa Sarai someone I had been corresponding with for eight years who comes from a family of limited income but who was studying at the University of Technology in Baghdad. But while he was studying, he also had to do several jobs working in construction, working as a porter. And even after graduating with a BA, I met him in Baghdad in February during my last trip. He had finished with a BS, I'm sorry, a Bachelor of Science from the University of Technology in Baghdad in programming. But the only job he could find was to work as a kind of a scribe outside one of these courts. He would help citizens write petitions for the lawsuits that they had. And he was one of the fortunate ones. And he was one of those who, of the tens of thousands who had been demonstrating and protesting since 2011, because he said that he just wanted a decent life. He he said he wanted a, a beautiful Iraq, a clean Iraq. He wanted his rights and he was shot with one of those canisters that went into his head and died after a few hours.
2: That's very sad. I think we need to hear these narratives, and that's what I was hoping that you would bring up, some of these examples. I, I just want to mention
1: one more example. From the first day of the protests in October, there was a very moving clip of an old woman who, like thousands of men women and children was had been forced to sell tissue on the street to make a living and she was going around giving her the tissues that she makes her living from for free to help the protesters who were suffering from the effects of the tear gas there are so many images of these i mean i listeners and viewers perhaps are are used to these kinds of images of immense poverty from the global south but considering the immense wealth of Iraq and of the country, this is unacceptable. And that's what Iraqis say, which I should say that one of the major slogans is that I'm going to reclaim my right. So, rights and justice, which is a very important development, because, you know, after long years of deploying sectarian discourse and sectarian symbols, I think for the new generations, but for all Iraqis, after experiencing what has happened, now they realize that we are, in a way, back to basics of social justice and the rights of citizenship, as opposed to sect and and whatnot.
2: As you mentioned, the desire to reclaim their homeland, which is a very important slogan.
1: That has been also very important and very powerful and moving in that the sectarian parties with their connections to iran and to the u.s the u.s which brought them to power and in the first place for the longest time deployed this sectarian language and sadly many iraqis internalized this language and it tried to erase any sense of of iraqiness or let us say inflect iraqiness through sects only now the protesters had been always calling, even in previous years, but this time that there only be Iraqi flags. And it has been really amazing that there are no sectarian slogans whatsoever, no sectarian symbols. And another very important development is that even the a lot of the Shiite rituals that center around the martyrdom of Hussein are now also being actually articulated in the language of social justice taking it back to how it was being used in earlier decades, in a way, before this institutionalization of of sectarianism. So I think the sense of reclaiming and actually reinventing a new sense of national belonging that transcends sect and religion and all of these. And I should mention that there have been very, very moving initiatives. So a caravan came from Fallujah to Tahrir Square bringing some support and to express the support of people in Fallujah to the protesters. I saw images of Iraqi young Christian women in the north who say, we we cannot protest, but we'll take this picture of us holding signs. Students demonstrated in the University of Mosul and the chants. Uh, were you know, Mosul support is supporting Baghdad you know so Baghdad go forward I received messages from someone a young student in a school in the Kurdistan area who said that at the height of the protest that her even though they were not they were not Arabs they were Kurds but they also at the school they were protesting internally to kind of support a fellow Iraqis so I think it's definitely a unique uh, moment of change towards a new phase of the sense of Iraqiness hopefully the, the eclipsing of institutionalized sectarianism I'm not saying or suggesting that that it's going to uh, disappear overnight but I think uh, we are witnessing something completely different.
2: I just wanted to add a large number of influential professionals and academics among Iraqi Kurds have published statements in support of the protests. And among the Kurds, there is a disaffection with the leadership of the Kurdish region and their corruption. But in the areas with Sunni Arab and or Kurdish majority, there has been a lack of participation in the protests. Can you s- explain why?
1: Well, I think in the... Western provinces and the so-called Sunni provinces, and I I don't like to use this terminology. The problem is that in earlier years, when citizens there protested, they were crushed by the regime, and then they were branded as Ba'athist or pro-ISIS or so on and so forth. And those who have tried in Ambar province and elsewhere were arrested right away and crushed. So that is the reason why they cannot. I mean, yesterday there was a an interesting clip where a protester in Baghdad addressed those fellow Iraqis in those provinces, saying that we know that you are with us and we know that you are thirsting to join us, but we know that you can't because of what I had just mentioned. So it's not easy because these provinces have suffered so much from the oppression of the regime and the violence response whenever there were protests. And they, if they would, right away, they would be branded as traitors or ex bathists I mean, the regime tried to brand these protesters in October as ex bathists which is laughable. But these are the tools that these regimes use. And I think in Kurdistan, as you said, the regime there suffers from many of the same ills of the political elite in Baghdad. There is massive corruption over there. But of course, there are other issues and risks that cannot be easily solved that have to do with the legitimate question of Kurdish autonomy or Kurdish independence still looms large, and that might be the obstacle for any strong, massive support for the protest in the rest of Iraq, because, of course, of the long history of how the central state and Baghdad has dealt with that. But I should say that one of the sticking issues for a lot of protesters is precisely the the ethno-sectarian system that was established in 2003.
2: I'm glad you brought that up because the protesters have expressed their disaffection and anger at Iraq's current confessional sectarian political structure. Can you briefly describe to us how this structure is intended to function? And you mentioned its origins are in the U.S. invasion in 2003. The problem with this, this
1: congenital defect of thinking of Iraq as a collection of sects and thinking of Iraqis as primarily Sunnis and Shiites and Kurds. And what has happened is that this system has benefited the Sunni political elite and the Shiite political elite and the Kurdish political elite. It has not really benefited the Iraqis whether they are Shiites or Sunnis or even Kurds, actually. That is the major problem of this system. And it's intended to function that it is monopolized by these same faces that have been rotating, by and large, with a few exceptions, since 2003. I give you another concrete example. In my visits to Iraq in the last few years and in going to the south, for example, to Amara and to Basra, And these cities where supposedly some of these Shiite parties have their social base, these are the areas from which, from the 1980s, a lot of men gave their lives in resisting the Saddam regime for these parties. But there's no infrastructure whatsoever in these areas. So even according to the architecture of this ethno-sectarian system, it has not really benefited the members of those sects themselves and we have the massive corruption in Kurdistan we have massive corruption also in the Western provinces and there is huge disaffection against those so-called Sunni politicians because they also participate in this political game to enrich themselves and to maintain their patronage system and I should add that the president has to always be a The head of the parliament is always a Sunni, and the prime minister is always a Shia. It's kind of like it's reminiscent of the division that you have in Lebanon, which is, of course, you know, ridiculous.
2: We talked about how these protests seem to have started spontaneously, with none of these traditional political parties playing a role in them. What do we know about the leadership of these protests? We know that decades of authoritarian rule... War and sanctions have surely taken their toll on the civil society and civic activism in Iraq. Given that, what do we know about the role played by civil society groups in the current wave of protests? And how do grassroots activists mobilize in such an environment under the existing political system in Iraq?
1: I think the waves of protests in previous years formed, in a way, networks of activists and people who always participate in the new protests. But many of these were of a certain background in a way, let's say middle class background and so on and so forth. What's interesting about this wave, as we said, is that it started out from outside of the middle class. But what I think I mean there is no clear leadership now. It's very diffuse. And but I I think that in the last month and as we go on forward there are new networks that are emerging what's interesting in this new space that's being created in tahrir and elsewhere is that iraqis from different backgrounds who previously would perhaps never work together in the same space are interacting and getting to know each other and there are so many stories and so many incidents in terms of civil society i mean As you mentioned, the problem is that for long years under the previous regime, syndicates and and unions were largely became just tools for the regime and were populated with members of the Ba'ath Party. But what is happening now is I think a lot of these structures are coming to realize their importance and the role that they could potentially play. So the union of teachers, for example issued a statement saying that they will join the civil disobedience and the strike and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of this is already developing, and it's too early to exactly identify what is happening. But there is a new sense of civic activism in Iraq. And many of these young uh, men and women are not grassroots activists. They are now becoming activists in a way, in the process of becoming new agents of change and learning on the ground as they go about. But what's important is that this moment and the October, now we are in November, and the sacrifices and the creativity of the protesters has inspired so many to come and join and kind of has unleashed a new creative energy in that you have doctors going to help, you have nurses going to help, you have people going to clean, and you have artists going to paint graffiti, uh, the protesters realizing that they need their own means of a communication and a representation. So starting a newspaper and starting an internal radio, this is really very important. So I think a lot of them, of course, a lot of them have learned so much from the Arab revolts from 2011 and they see what ha- what is happening in Algeria, they see what is happening elsewhere, they see what happened in Sudan. And so there is an accumulation of experiences, but I think a lot of it is happening now as we speak.
0: That's Sinan Antoun speaking with Shahram Oghamir about the mass popular uprising in Iraq and violent crackdowns by security forces on peaceful protesters. We'll hear more after a break.
2: You mentioned the class composition of the protests. You brought up this, this thing about the middle class. Throughout our programs covering the region, we have been talking about this phenomenon of uh, middle class poor. The friend of yours whom you mentioned obviously belonged to this category, a university graduate with the aspirations of middle class, but essentially they are impoverished. They are considered yes. the poor. So it seems like you do see that phenomenon in these protests as well as we did see it throughout the region, North Africa and Middle East.
1: I should say that my friend was from a working class background, but he was of the generation that was supposed to change that. But yes, as we said, it started out these protests by unemployed and disaffected poor youth. The shrinking Iraqi middle class, or what remains of it, soon thereafter joined the protests, because of course they share the same set of grievances, of course, if, if their situation is... It's better, of course, but they share the same set of grievances and they have been suffering as well. And that's what gave, what fueled this protest and made it even more dangerous to the regime is that this is the first time that sectors from different classes and different backgrounds all join together and share the same demands in a way.
2: The protesters seem to have recognized the clear limitations of street protest. Therefore, they have initiated other forms of collective action. They have been blocking roads and bridges. Uh, For instance, they blocked the road to Iraq's main port for days, as you mentioned. Yes. Perhaps this is a lesson learned from their past protests, as well as the uprisings in the region. Can you talk about these actions?
1: I think seeing the intransigence of the regime itself and its unwillingness to take the protesters seriously, and not only that, coupled with continuing to kill peaceful protesters, that has further angered the protesters and made them realize that this regime is not going to respond unless it is further challenged. But I think they've learned the lessons, the hard and terrible lessons of the region, whether in Syria or elsewhere, that maintaining a peaceful approach is the best way to sustain this, because once it becomes an armed confrontation, they will lose, of course, and it will be a bloodbath. But in the last few weeks, they have extended the scope of the protest in Baghdad, for example, in trying to take more bridges and more neighborhoods and kind of maneuvering in a way. But also in the south, in Basra, and trying to basically block the functioning of the state in order to force the state to act or to respond. And I think they've realized that unless they further Resist the state in ways nothing will change.
2: There must be a discussion of uh, uh, strikes within uh, key sectors of the economy. First and foremost, the petroleum sector. I mean, there used to be a strong unionized and mobilized group of workers in that sector, but I don't believe that's the case anymore, is it?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, also there is there isn't a consensus. Even some of the activists from previous protests on social media, at least they say that they are against blocking the export of oil or touching state institutions and things like that. But I think a lot of the protesters are angered by the regime not taking them seriously, not listening to them, and by the continued killing of innocent protesters. But I have not seen anything from the union of oil workers that indicates that they are actively doing anything or have issued any official statement. And of course, I must say that a lot of the employees of the state, which is the largest employer in the country, are threatened with losing their job if they participate in the protest. Just before our interview, I saw a clip of a, a young woman who was told by her boss that she will lose her job if she continues to protest and she resigned from her job so that she can take food and other items to support the protesters in Tahrir. So we're seeing all kinds of sacrifices on the part of Iraqis because I think they all realize that this is a very unique moment and this is an opportunity to really reclaim the country and put it on some sort of track towards genuine change not the false change that the regime keeps promising, but never delivering.
2: What are the main pillars of power of the ruling bloc, or as you put it, the political class? Have there been any signs of rifts within this bloc?
1: The main pillars are the the parties, but you also have the strong pro-Iran militias, of course. But I have not seen any signs of serious rifts within these blocs because in a way, these blocks keep rotating and, and reaping the benefits. I mean, there were three resignations on the part of members of parliament, two of them communists, but the communists had already lost any credibility with the Iraqi street because, because of their participation in the political game and also because previous wave of protesters that were hijacked by Muqtada Sadr were the communists also took part in that. And because they entered the one of the blocks. But as of yet there isn't any serious rifts within these blocks. Hmm. Not
2: that I know of. Unless there are cracks within the ruling block, it's difficult to dislodge these regimes.
1: The interesting thing is that of course Muqtada Sadr always has this performance so that he's somehow outside of this block or of this ruling coalitions. In the past he hijacked the wave of massive protests, but this time he has failed to do so and it was interesting that when he uh, drove his car in Najaf, a lot of the chants were against him hijacking this. And one of the main slogans has been against Muqtada Sadr and Hadi al-Amri, the head of the PMU, the popular mobilization units that were formed after the ISIS catastrophe and that many of these militias, thats the, the umbrella for the militias, many of the militias that Are financed by Iran and that they are very close to Iran, are controlled by Tehran. But I think so many of the protesters have expressed the rejection of any of the main figures of the political elite taking over. So they they realize that there are attempts, there were attempts to hijack these protests. The other interesting thing I should say that uh, I think seven or eight days ago the. PMU, again, were planning a counter-protest that was going to raise slogans to defend the Marji'iyah and Sistani. But then the Marji'iyah issued a statement saying that it is against using its name in, in any kind of protest. So even that failed to gather and only 150 people showed up. So the attempt to hijack the protests have failed by these major figures.
2: You're referring to Shia religious leadership in Najaf and Grand yes. Ayatollah Sistani in particular. Yes. Uh, let's turn to the military, the security forces, the militia and the police. It's fair to say that the survival of the Iraqi regime is invariably tied to the loyalty of these forces and the willingness to use brute force to quell the protests. The regime's ability to maintain its network of patronage to pay its militants for their loyalty has not been hampered so far. Is there a reason to think that cracks may emerge within the regime's coercive apparatus? You mentioned something about some soldiers or military officers showing sympathy with the protesters.
1: These were individual uh, isolated cases, and I, I don't know. It depends on what's going to happen in the coming weeks and what the regime's response is going to be. And I think it depends also on the individual cases. I think that if the regime makes the mistake of increasing its its violent response and killing a large number of protesters, there might be there might be cracks within these apparatus. It's too early to tell. There haven't been any major figures jumping ship, and then there is also the fear of some kind of coup or military coup. That's also part of the atmosphere.
2: Sinan, I think we need to talk about the role played by regional and international powers. The protesters have made it clear that they are fed up with the political leadership that is influenced by outside powers. One of these outside powers is Iran, clearly. Uh, Protesters have been chanting slogans against the Iranian leadership, and we should make it clear this is against the Iranian regime, not Iranians as a whole. And earlier this week, Iranian consulate in Karbala was torched by a group of protesters. Some protesters have also been saying that the snipers killing the protesters are either Iranian or they're members of the militia forces allied with and loyal to the Iranian regime, as you mentioned earlier. This is all taking place in the areas where the population is predominantly Shia. This is also where the dominant political parties, except for Sadrish, and you can debate that, the supporters of cleric Muqtada al Sad are close allies of the Iranian regime. What can you tell us about the anger at the regime in Tehran? This is not new. In previous
1: waves, in previous years, one of the chants was
2: Iran barra
1: barra, Iran outside. So many of these Shiite political parties have very strong relationships with the Iranian regime. Many of them were exiled in Tehran during Saddam's reign. Some of them fought with the Iranian army against the Iraqi army. And so, you know, people know this and people have a memory or they learn of that. But I think Iraqis, many Iraqis, whether Shiites or not, discovered in the previous years and realized that these figures are beholden to Iran more so than Iraq. It's about an issue, about loyalty, whether loyalty is to Tehran or loyalty is to Iraq. And it's also, as as we've mentioned, the combination of all of the corruption and all of that and the, the growing sense of Iraqiness. So it's not surprising at all. Also what in the statement that Khamenei made to delegitimize these protests and to kind of paint them as somehow just a conspiracy by the United States. And the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Not that these regimes are not also involved in various degrees and implicated in what has happened in Iraq. I mean, after all, it's the United States that established this entire political system and brought these, these parties. But there has been for years growing anger against the massive influence that the Iranian regime has in Iraq through these parties many of whose figures, of course, oftentimes go to Tehran and consult with Tehran to go about their business. I mean, even Muqtada Sadr, who tries to present himself as somehow of a more unlike
2: the others, but he too now, I think, is in Tehran. When we talk about this confessional sectarian political structure, it's clear that the, the occupying force led by the U.S. initiated this. But I think we should also mention that This idea was definitely embraced by the Iranian regime, and it was supported, and it has been supported ever since 2003. Sometimes, because we look at the uh, occupying power and its role, we forget that there was no objection from the Iranian regime. I mean, these are their own loyal forces that are participating in this structure. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, yes, of
2: course. You mentioned Ayatollah Khamenei Iranian supreme leader there is a campaign uh, with a rather baffling message that the protests in Iraq have either been initiated or at the minimum manipulated by the United States, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Israel. Those behind this campaign and its perplexing message include the Iranian regime, uh, its allies in Iraq's ruling bloc, and some journalists and the media which are sympathetic to the Iranian regime as well as some of the academics and intellectuals, with nationalists and even, unfortunately, leftist convictions. There was an article in Al-Akhbar just last week, propagating this line of thinking. How would you respond to such claims?
1: This is the typical claim that we have seen oftentimes when there is a revolt or an uprising or whatever you want to call it, is trying to explain it away or to reduce it to something else. Are these international and regional actors involved in what's happening on the ground? Of course, they are. They have always been, and, and they have always been, and they will always be, with through their intelligence services and through their attempts to manipulate the messages on social media. Of course, but there are instances and there are cases, as with this case or with the case in Lebanon, where there is a massive outpouring and there is a spontaneous. Protests for very legitimate reasons, obviously. Will these powers and these states and their proxies have they and will they try to hijack and influence these protests? Sure, of course, this is always the case. It's one thing to say that there are certain outlets that are trying to influence the message so. There is massive anger against Iran, definitely for legitimate reasons, for the Iranian, against the re- Iranian regime, of course, not the Iranian people. But also the way Western media, mainstream Western media, represents these protests, they are only interested in them insofar as they are against Iran. So I saw sure. a number of articles or even TV programs in Europe where they are asking Iraqi activists or so-called pundits on Iraq How will this hurt Iran? On the other hand, there is also, for example, the Al-Hurra, the U.S. government-owned TV station, which a lot of Iraqis and a lot of Iraqi activists follow, has one message only, basically. So while, of course, it highlights the suffering of Iraqis and their demands, but obviously it's guided in a way by a strong message that has to do with the United States' ongoing struggles against Iran in the region, but what's baffling is, I mean, we've seen this in 2011 with the Arab revolts in Tunisia and, and then in Egypt and in Syria, there's always this discourse on the part of some leftist and anti imperialists that these are mainly conspiracies. I just want to say that there is a difference between acknowledging that these are very complicated and quickly changing processes, that, that there's always the potential of action on the ground being hijacked and being moved in a certain direction, there are always attempts to do that. There's a difference between that and between saying that this is totally manufactured by embassies and by foreign intelligence, which is, I think, is disrespectful to the genuine suffering and the sacrifices of human beings on the ground. I know that this Safa, my friend, who was killed, was not being motivated by any embassy or by any government. He was motivated by the simple yet very powerful desire to have a dignified life. His examples for revolt were Iraqi poets and the long history of Iraqi struggle. He was not interested in any kind of American or Saudi vision about how to be. It upsets me, of course, because I saw this article in Al-Akhbar, early on. But the sources of that article were actually seem to be um, Iranian intelligence. Yes. But, I, mean, I, I think people should just be slightly more careful and more nuanced in how they project their own perspective and their own political interests onto protests that are taking place on the ground. This goes back all the way to 1991, when the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So many intellectuals and many citizens around the world in their well-intentioned opposition to the United States invasion and bombing of Iraq, they ended up being uncritical of the Saddam Hussein regime. And the same thing happened in 2003 again. And it's kind of not letting one's political position cloud one's judgments. Uh, That's easier
2: said than done. Since we talked about Iran, the U.S. clearly had a pivotal and destructive role in the recent history of Iraq. What is the United States' role and Saudi Arabia's role in Iraq today? And do you think the U.S. government and the Saudi regime have an interest in continuation of these protests? Adel Abdul mahdi current prime minister, was a sort of a compromise choice. Yes. And the United States and Iran both supported it. The yes. Saudis actually supported it. Yes. So continuation of this protests in Iraq, in what ways it would benefit the United States and Saudis? I can understand it may uh, do something in terms of weakening the Iraqi government, but do they really want chaos? A worst-case scenario in their eyes is a regime change with some sort of a progressive you yes. know, agenda?
1: It's not in the interest of the United States or Saudi Arabia to have genuine change in any country in the region that would lead or put the country on a path to a more democratic society. Let's just remember that. But the United States and its allies are only interested in these kinds of protests or movements insofar as they can push them in a certain direction. And that's what I mentioned the reports in the mainstream media about. They're only interested in this insofar as, you know, they can win a battle against the Iranian influence in Iraq.
2: But it's a dangerous gamble.
1: It's a very dangerous gamble. What I liked in those banners that they put on top of the Turkish restaurant is that, you know, they said clearly no Turkey, no Iran, no United States, no Israel. So, of course, there isn't a unified voice for the protesters now, but a lot of them are interested in a sovereign, independent Iraq that is not beholden to any country, east or west.
2: I think we should be, make it very clear that Iran's role is in Iraq, I don't know if you agree with me, there is no comparison with Saudi's role, the actual influence in, in no, Iraq of course, of compared course, to yeah. Iran. Iran no, is, is the major player in Iraq. No, of course. I think there is any sort of false false equivalence, equivalence. we should not fall into that. What do you think Iraqi regime's strategy is? You kind of hinted at it. Are they going to try to wait it out and hope that in the absence of clear leadership and defined organization, the protest will gradually fizzle out?
1: I think they are betting and banking on that with time, the, a lot of the protesters or their supporters will lose their patience and will want to go back to some kind of so-called normalcy. So I think it's a struggle between who has the longer breath and who is more resilient. And I think they're underestimating how angry so many of these protesters are, especially the youth, and how, frankly, they have nothing to lose. There is so much despair in their lives, and there is nothing to look forward to, and this is very important. So I think they're going to wait it out, and then they might try to brand and say this is obviously, you know, some kind of nihilistic movement that doesn't have any real clear goals, and it's, you know, it's going to disrupt the working of the state. I mean, Adel Abdel Mahdi, in a few days ago, said something about all the losses that the Iraqi state has incurred because of these protests. And, you know, a lot of the protesters and their supporters were, of course, ridiculing this because it's nothing compared to the massive losses of the Iraqi people because of this government, this regime. There is no way of telling, but I, I hope and I think that a more defined structure will have to crystallize in the coming days and weeks. I wanted to say that it's amazing courage for these young protesters to face bullets. But I think it's also, it reflects the sense of despair that they are so willing to risk their lives to stand against this power. I mean, there were images and clips of young men in front of the, on the bridge and then being shot in the head, but also people just carrying the flag. So I think the combination of anger and impatience, but also the new sense of Iraqiness and how these protesters feel emboldened and empowered because they see that an entire nation is really behind them, that they are on the battlefront for the future of the country. And I mean, I know many of them and I communicate with them and one of these young activists, and she's a lawyer, I was kind of telling her when the internet was cut off that I was worried that there's going to be a massacre committed, and she said, you know, we are stronger than them. And I know that this might sound emotional, but I think that the sense of determination is really unprecedented. And I think the protesters know that this is really a decisive struggle for the future of the country. But I, I, I think no matter what, no matter what the regime does, this has set a precedent for future action, and that these large sectors of the Iraqi society are going to maintain the pressure, because now also they realize that there is a possibility of different classes and different people coming together with one voice. And if they did it once, even if they are weakened or crushed, they will do it again.
0: Sinan Antoun is a celebrated poet, novelist, translator, and a scholar of modern Arabic literature and contemporary Arab culture and politics at the Gallatin School at NYU. His latest novel is titled The Book of Collateral Damage. you've been listening to status audio magazine the status is produced by the arab studies institute in partnership with voices of the middle east and north africa co-sponsored by george mason university's Middle Eastern Studies program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer Paola Messina at paola at a hour dot com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website statushour.com or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com.